Wellsprings Word. We're glad you decided to tune in this week. Now, are you ready? Let's take another drink. All right, let's go to the scripture. Malachi chapter 3. We're going to talk about tithing. No, we're not. <laughs> Malachi chapter 3. But y'all did good. Nobody walked out. And nobody instantly was like, okay, cool, NFL app, here we go, who's winning? Like, you did pretty good. So Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to read the first five verses of Malachi, and then we're going to talk about some Advent-related stuff that I think can be a blessing to you. At least I'll do my very best to share it with you the way the Lord shared it with me. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near you for judgment I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Can you say amen? Looking back at that beginning part there, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Father, open your word to us and help us apprehend that revelation that you have for us today. I thank you, Lord. It's very much like manna in the Old Testament. Every day you have bread for us. You taught us to pray for it. Give us this day our daily bread and then taught us that you are, in fact, the bread. So give us that portion of you that you have for us today that we might grow and learn and become stronger and more well-suited to the hour in which we live. And we ask it in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So one of the key themes of Advent that is implied throughout the entirety of the whole thing and then the way the calendar works this year, I I don't get to preach all five weeks of Advent because of how the calendar works. And so we have the party the next week and so forth like that. So I'm going to try to capture one of the key themes of Advent just at one time right now. And that is the idea of waiting. Now, everyone who feels like their spiritual gift is waiting, just go ahead and raise your hand real quick. If you're just, that's your favorite thing is to wait. Okay, so nobody really feels that anointing. Okay, cool. Honesty is good. Advent has at its core the idea of waiting, that God makes a promise and there can be some time. In fact, God can make a promise and there can be a lot of time, right? When we read these words of Malachi... We have to understand that Malachi is the last prophet before what most Bible scholars call the years of silence, 400 years that God sent no more prophets to the land. And the last thing that they had been told was, hey, get ready because he's coming. And then they wait. And we find out that in the economy of God... (laughs) When he said, hey, don't sweat it. For me, a day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. And we go, well, isn't he poetic? Isn't that cute? And then we start finding out that in reality to the Lord, he's coming quickly. Okay, we're ready. 400 
years. Now, to put this in perspective for Americans, consider America's not even 400 years old. Okay, so, so this would be a prophet arising during the Revolutionary War and declaring a prophetic word over our nation about a leader who's coming. And every presidential election after that, for the last 200 and whatever years, we wait to see, is this it? And we would still, uh, <laughs> I'm going to stay out of it, but we, we, would still, we would still be pretty much going like, no. And it's a promise that as a nation they're anchored to, God is sending his Messiah. And the last guy who prophesied said, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. So, okay. And then they get to Wait. The reason this matters is because traditionally throughout church history, what Advent was about was about recognizing that just like they were waiting for the first coming of Christ, you and I exist in a space where we are waiting on the second coming of Christ, and the same thing applies where God has made a promise. Now, where we have, we look back to the first coming of Christ, and if you interpret your scriptures correctly, it should build your faith that if Jesus came the first time, fulfilled every prophecy the first time, didn't eliminate a single detail the first time, overcame all of that adversity and all of that trouble to be born and walk the earth and die and rise again the first First time, then I can certainly count on him to fulfill every prophecy and arrive the second time and do exactly what he said, regardless of whether our culture wants him to show up or not, I can trust him. The Jews had the same kind of thing, but what they looked to was the Exodus. This is the same God who got us out of Egypt. He said he would do it, and then he did it. <laughs> Made them wait 400 years that time, too. If you do your Bible studying. He has a way of telling Jewish people, I'm going to be right there. And then letting them wait 400 years. Everybody just say 400 years. Now, there's some cool pieces of the prophecy. We recognize them. You guys are all super smart in your Bible, so I don't have to point them all out. But, you know, he makes a reference that we know from our Revelation New Testament is John the Baptist. I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, right? We recognize that when he said, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, that this is most clearly a reference to that day that Jesus walked into the temple and started turning stuff over and driving out the money changers and making a mess out of everything and announcing that that was in fact his father's house and not to be filled with all the wares and the garbage of men. On down a little ways, it said he was gonna be a swift witness. You remember that in verse five? I will be a swift witness against Sorcerers against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners. And the against in the Hebrew is incredibly forceful. In other words, I will come and get right in your face and tell you that what you're doing is sin. Right? And when we read about Jesus in the Gospels, what were they always marveling about? He teaches as one with authority not as one of the scribes or one of the Pharisees. So we can see all of these cool elements, right? On this side, everybody say this side. On this side of the fulfillment, we can look at it and go, wow, Malachi was flowing, man. He nailed it. And then 400 years went by. And people get to wait. Everybody just say the word wait. Now, Matthew chapter three, let's just look over there. You guys know this is in your Bible, but I want to just encourage you. 400 years go by, and in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. So did God do it? Yes. Did he do it exactly the way he wanted to? Yes. Was that exactly the way they would have liked it? 
no, no, no. What we learn in the process of Advent is this super inconvenient truth for Americans. God is doing his own thing. And it's not up to you, and it's not up to me. It's not even up to the dude with the Learjet. God is just doing his own thing. Famously, Abraham Lincoln said, I'm not sweating whether or not I figure out how to get God on my side. I just want to be on his. Because this whole hyper-manipulative movement in America that we get to move God, say it enough, pray it enough, give enough, what an absolute heretical pile of garbage. God is moving on his own timetable. Jesus declared it after the resurrection. Boys, this stuff is at the Father's bidding. It is own timing. You don't even get to know the day. You just need to get busy. God's working his own calendar, doing his own thing. You don't get to move him. If you could move him, he wouldn't be God. No, the better thing to do is get with him and go, cool, where are we going? (laughs) Because wherever you are, I'm planning to stay, right? Like, you want to be that annoying child where the Lord's finally like, just give give me a little spin. And you're like, no. The only safe place in the whole world is right here. I want to be with him. That's far more important than some manipulatively weird doctrine trying to get him to be with me. No, no, no. I want to be with him. And then he makes us sometimes wait. Everybody just say wait. Now, I want us to, I want to consider something. I know that this has already been perhaps one of the most exciting, exhilarating teachings you've ever heard in all of your life. It's going to get even better. Because I want to talk to you about what went wrong while they waited. Because as people wait, hmm. We don't always wait well. We have this weird way of getting antsy, and then we do weird things while we wait. (laughs) So, uh, Lisa, let's put that slide up. It should have words on it. There we go. So these are five things (laughs) that happened while they waited. You've heard of all of these people, but probably out of your own preservation of sanity have not read the books boring enough to explain these people to you. They're just references in your Bible that you see. Jesus dealing with the Pharisees, Jesus dealing with the Sadducees, this kind of thing. But it's actually kind of interesting, and I'm not going to belabor it and turn it into like some kind of you know, Bible-level you know, college class because that's just too painful to do, but... We're going to skip through from like a high altitude, and it's relevant, actually. We could learn something from what happens during this intertestament time. God is not talking. So the people of God go, cool, let's figure it out. And that doesn't always turn out good, brothers and sisters. Sometimes it would be better to back up and say, he ain't saying nothing, so we're not saying nothing. We're just going to (laughs) wait. I mean, even in the book of Acts, right, they start like rolling dice to have a board meeting to pick a guy. Like we just, we don't do good when we wait. And and so this this really is just a classic historical example of the kind of messes the people of God can make, the people of God can make, the people of God can make. These are not Roman problems. These are things the people of God did. While they waited, the Pharisees, everybody just say Pharisee, they decided that the most important thing was to stick to the law. All these moving parts, but we have the law. That'll be our thing, and the most important thing is the law. If you were going to bring it into a modern vernacular, just give me the word, give me the Bible, give me the word, give me the Bible. Sounds great. It's not a bad place to start. To stay in the word, right? Like that's a good thing to do. 
But what did Paul tell us even in the New Testament? He said, just make sure that while you're focusing on the letter of the law, you don't lose the spirit of the one who gave it to you. And what we find in the Pharisees is they hyper-focused on the law till they left the heart of God behind. Just focusing on little tiny things. Like it probably, there's no more obvious example than this mess they started causing over the Sabbath, right? God was being nice. He said, you should have one day a week that you don't work. How many like that? How many can recognize that this was the goodness of the Lord? You should have a day you don't work. Then God, knowing how people are, he goes, I'll make it a law. Because if I don't tell you that you can't do stuff on Sunday or Saturday or whatever, please nobody email me, I don't care, whatever. Pick your day. If I don't make it a law, somebody for their own profit will start doing business on the Sabbath, then you'll think that you have to And pretty soon the whole nation will have no day of rest. Now, I'm not saying that we haven't observed that very thing play out in our own country, but we have. So God gave them a law. Keep the Sabbath holy. Just rest. Don't work. Don't build. Don't plant. Don't nothing. You need a day to be family. You need a day to pray. You need a day for worship. It's good. By the time Jesus shows up, These Pharisees are running around heaping burdens on the people in the name of the day of rest. That's how you know you took it too far. I was having a fascinating conversation with a Pentecostal friend of mine one day, and he said he was, you know, he classic Pentecostal. Praise God. I mean, he was in it, man. Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost. Amen. Prayed in other tongues before I was born. Cool. I have so much of the Holy Ghost in me that when they baptized me, I was praying in other tongues under the water. Bubbles were coming out. Cool. Praise God. All about it. And he's become one of the meanest people I've ever met. All he knows is what's wrong with everybody, and he's confused a spirit of suspicion for discernment. And to try to talk to him about the fact that, hey, while you were all invested in getting the Holy Spirit somewhere along the way, you lost it even though you yabba-dabba all day long. Because if you were full of my Jesus, you don't tear down everybody you meet and everybody doesn't walk away from you in conversation more broken than they were when they met you, right? You can hyper-focus till you lose the heart of God. And that's what the Pharisees had done. It started out good enough. Let's make sure we keep the scriptures. But they focused on it until Jesus has no bigger problem Now consider that. The men who devoted themselves to keeping the scripture were the biggest problem for the word when he came. That's how far out of whack they got, the Pharisees. Now there was some good to it, right? Because we know Paul was a Pharisee. He states it plainly. I was one of them. That's why he knew the word back and forth. What had to happen? Holy Spirit had to come, bring him revelation of how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of that stuff he knew. And then Paul becomes a fireball that can bring revival almost anywhere and stand on the streets in Rome and rebuke the Caesar himself. On fire, that knowledge was awesome, but it took the revelation of Christ for it to matter. Read all the books you want, but then bring your books to your prayer closet and know Jesus. Amen? Pharisees, now just I'm going to give you a piece just so when you understand when you read your New Testament, this is why scribes, everybody say the word scribes. Scribes became real important because they were anointed by the Pharisees. You guys are smart enough to write the scriptures good enough where we will believe you. So that was the scribes. You know what's pretty fascinating is that by the time Jesus comes by Jewish tradition, they had added like 800 commandments. Because the scribes were so trusted that if they were like, now listen for this, because if you notice a parallel again, it's purely intentional. They had said, you know, I know it says this, but I'm sure it meant that. And you can trust me, I'm a scribe. 
Praise the Lord. I didn't even say it. Thank you, Ruthann. Let's talk about the Sadducees. They were sad, you see. Um, now, this is interesting because, see, the Pharisees were all hung up in the law, and that's why the synagogue system started. Because the Pharisees were like, we don't have to be in any one particular place. We'll build little synagogues and we will gather together and we will read the scripture because the scripture is the only thing that matters. The Sadducees thought the Pharisees were stupid. They were like, this is ridiculous. None of this means anything without the high priest. So the Sadducees were committed. We've got to be with the high priest. This whole system only works because the high priest of God administers the covenant. And so we've got to be close to the high priest. Everybody say the high priest. Where this got interesting for the Sadducees, they were sad, you see, because the Romans came in and said, huh, if we made that high priest thing a political position, we would have control because all the people are doing what that priest guy says. So we just need him doing what we say. And then we'd have control. So the Sadducees follow their devotion of the high priest into being a political party. Any parallels are purely intentional. So out of this became a thing of our religion's purpose is not to be right with God, but to be right with the state. This is how we get along with Rome. And that's what God would want us to do. They were sad, you see. And so they had this constant thing with the Pharisees because the Pharisees would stand over here and be like, okay, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, time out. All that stuff you're doing is not in the Bible. And the Sadducees would go, yeah, okay, whatever, but they like us and we have money. And so they just had a thing. To the Pharisees, the Sadducees were horribly compromised. To the Sadducees, the Pharisees were fanatical and stupid. Two groups, diametrically opposed. I don't know. I know that we have no cultural reference for what I'm talking about historically, but I'm just saying, make a journey. Throw a rope around it. Just because it could become relevant, they were sad, you see. The high priest was a politician now, and the Sadducees were serving the high priest, so they were serving politics instead of Christ. There was a third group, you hear less about them, but they're important. Are you having fun yet? Because this is getting even better. The Herodians. Everybody say the Herodian. Now, if you look real hard and you don't have to be a Bible scholar to see that Herod's name is contained in the word Herodian. Everybody just say Herodian. The Herodians became the group that said, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Pharisees are fanatical over here. Sadducees are just all over the map over here. But the Romans gave us a king. We should serve him. That's the most important part. And the Pharisees go like, yeah, but he's not very Bible. And the Herodians go, we don't care because he's in charge. He's our man. It doesn't matter what his morals are like. He's our man. So the Herodians worked to say, Pharisees, you aren't practical at all. You're too fanatical. You don't get along with anybody. You're terrible. Sadducees, you guys are nuts because the high priest might be appointed, but he's just a puppet. If you want to get anywhere in this life, you got to be close to the king. Herod, we will follow you anywhere. And the divisions between the Herodians and the Sadducees got bitter, bitter, nasty, nasty, nasty. Because the Herodians would do anything for Herod. Everybody say the word anything. The Herodians historically would do anything for Herod. Have you ever wondered when you read your Bible, when Herod goes, go down there and kill every child under the age of two? Who does that? A Herodian would. Herod must be right. He's the king. So they were all completely hyper-focused on one dude. And he could tell them anything he wanted and they would go do it. Right? 
Well, you only have to read a little bit about the appointed King Herod to know that his heart was so far from God, he couldn't have found a revelation with both hands on a butterfly net. So you have a whole group of people who see serving God as serving a man who knows nothing about God. That becomes dangerous. So you have the Herodians. Are we having fun yet? So let's talk about the zealots. Everybody say zealot. Zealots had it figured out. They went, you know what? Waiting on God don't work out. Because he's just not coming quick enough. And these Romans are ruling over us. And these Pharisees are over here being fanatical about the scriptures, arguing with me about walking down the street on the Sabbath day. I got the Sadducees over here trying to take all of my money so that we can appease this political system. I've got the Herodians over here trying to say that no matter what Herod wants me to do, I should do it. I'm looking around waiting for God and I'm not going to wait anymore. I will fix this situation myself. Everybody say zealots. The zealots were, have fun with this because it's historically inconvenient. Terrorists. A zealot would sneak in your house and cut your throat if you were Roman because he was serving God by killing you. Now you go like, what? Yes, that's not a new concept. The Arabs didn't do it first. The zealots were looking around and going, we can't wait on God anymore. We need to fight. Hmm. Anyways, so, so there they were knowing that God, the way forward must be to fight. That's what we must do. We have to fight. Of course we have to fight. And they get in their little groups and they go, what should we do? We should fight. And the other zealots go, amen, let's fight. And then they would look out the window and go, who can we go get? And they would go do horrible stuff. They were the terrorists of their day. Now, if you're sitting there right now with this creeping feeling in the back of your mind, it's true. One of the 12 was a zealot. You read about him and you don't think about that. You just think it's cool on the way to the fact that Matthew was a tax collector. But when it says Judas the zealot, then in other words, <laughs> if I could be so bold, in the garden that night, they needed to be glad Peter swung at that guy. Because they had a guy in the number that could have tore some stuff up. Now, there's a whole bunch of lessons we can learn from that. A, if you're a murderer, you could still be in the number if you believe in Christ and repent of your sin. That's really good news. And Jesus is clearly not afraid of strong people. He had a bunch of strong people in the original 12. Now, it caused him to pray all night, but he had them in there. But these zealots rose up, and so now you have... So think about this landscape. All of this is happening in God's name. All four groups, by the time Jesus comes, are all announcing that they are serving God the right way and the rest of you are wrong. So the Pharisees are over here. It's the word, the word, the word, and all of you are wrong. Well, what are you doing that for? It's how we serve God. And the Sadducees are just as committed over here. Those Pharisees are stupid. This is how you serve God. You work the system. That's what God would want us to do is be political, work the system, stay close to the priest, and make a little blessing on the way. And they were doing it in the name of God. Meet a Herodian on the street. Hey, bro, what's up with all this baby killing? That's how I serve God, by serving King Herod. Uh, Mr. Zealot, before you cut my throat for staggering upon the secret meeting, are you sure about the part where you ran those two people through with that spear and then went skimpering off into the night? Absolutely. That's how I serve God. Now, it doesn't take much to figure out that this is a pretty convoluted situation by the time John shows up to say, hey, Kingdom of God is at hand. And they all went. Another guy telling us what God wants us to do. And this guy looks like a super hippie. Camel hair robe, bugs in his hair. Like God doesn't even send somebody looking cool. 
John looks like a complete fanatic out there with the truth. You say, well, pastor, you skipped the essence. No, actually, I had to frame that so you understood them. The essence went, y'all are crazy. We're out. (laughs) No joke, historically, this is what they did. The essence were, in essence, Jewish monks. They gathered up scrolls of the scriptures and they left. You guys are crazy. We can't make sense of anything you're doing. We're out. Well, no, we're doing it the right way. I know you think you are, bless your heart. We're out. They just left. You say, well, why does that matter? Ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? That was the essence. Jewish monks took the scriptures out into the caves by the Dead Sea and just hid from all of it. We want nothing to do with any of this present weirdness. So when you get that instinct, you're not the first one. I told the Lord the other day, like, I'm going to Canada with Whoopi. I'm out. <laughs> I'm just out. And, and I had st- <laughs> I said, you know, I sent her an email and I said, still waiting for you to go. And she never answered me. I don't know. But I, I had only studied through the first four of these. And I'm telling the Lord, like, I'm just out. I'm just going to go find a little cabin somewhere in Canada. I'm just going to stand there till a bear eats me. Because that would be easier than trying to make sense of all this crazy, ridiculous stuff that everybody's doing in the name of God. And then I turned my page, the essence. Saw withdrawal and separation as the path. (laughs) The keepers of the scriptures, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Jewish monks that said, we're out, you guys are just getting too weird. And they did manage to stay out. That's why you don't see many references to anything related to them in the Gospels. Because by the time Jesus comes, they're hiding up on the hill like, this is getting way weird. And probably talking about it like, you know, he's opening the blinded eyes. That could be Messiah stuff. And the other Essen is like, oh, no, the crazy will come right back. They'll kill him for that. And then Jesus dies on the cross and he goes, see, I get today's bread. And the other Essen is like, oh, man. You know, like they were just, they finally said, no, 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 enough is enough. We're, we're, we're way out here. What is my point in sharing this with you? I'm trying to tell you that while we wait on the second coming of Christ, the same instinct to wait badly appears to be alive and well in the people of God. Everybody say the people of God. I'm not super concerned that the people who don't know Jesus don't wait well for his second coming. They have no revelation. Why would they wait well? But those of us that say we have the Holy Spirit and the scriptures should be able to wait well. And those spirits that we just talked about historically, man, the reason you were laughing, smirking, or sometimes getting horribly uncomfortable just now is because they're clearly still out there at work. The idea that we should hyper-focus on what's wrong with everyone in the name of God doesn't even make sense biblically, but yet you can go places where all you know is that the Christians are the people mad at everyone. Well, that's pharisaical, and that's not the heart of Jesus at all. The Sadducee idea that, look, politics is the key. So let's serve God by being political. Now, I recognize that we have a political system. Fine, and I hope everyone votes, and I hope everybody researches and gets involved in all of that stuff. But we don't have to pretend that we don't watch our national leaders come up before us, lie to our faces about their faith to get our vote. Pure politics. And everything about them is godless from the day after they get the job, after they took an oath on God's word. We watch the political system take advantage of and pray on the people of God. We see this happening if we're paying attention at all. And I will encourage you that if your immediate instinct is not my guy, your guy too. They know how to manipulate this and we keep watching them do it and then we keep being surprised when they do it. The Herodian idea, let's pick out one guy. He'll be our savior. 
I mean, do I even have to explore this at this point? Like, this is what we do. We don't see enough hope in God. We need a person. That's what we need, a person. It doesn't even matter what they look like. We will pick a person. That'll be our savior. Not a great plan. The zealot idea, I don't care. I'll be fine. Just give me some more ammo. I'm, look, I got a safe full of guns too, but I'm trying to figure out how does that work from a gospel? You know, like, they're coming down the road. They want my guns. Well, in the name of Jesus, whoa, hold on. Just hold on. Hold on, hold on. It starts to just twist who we are. Am I a pro-Second Amendment guy? All day long. But do I really think I would somehow be serving Jesus if I decide to have a gunfight with a sheriff over my gun? There is no way biblically to make that work. And yet you can go into any NRA meeting you want and find the group in the corner, in the name of Jesus, let's have a gunfight. I'm sorry, that was David Koresh, bro, not Jesus. What's happening is we're not waiting well. We need to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, but we don't. We fix our eyes on the politics. We fix our eyes on the power and the control. We fix our eyes on a person or we fix our eyes on a topic. This amendment or that amendment and that's what we'll be excited about. And it gets weird quick, brothers and sisters, because I don't want to bum you out today. Maybe I do, but I don't really want to because I love you, but we better get this straight going into the new year. You're not supposed to be more passionate about anything than you are Christ. You're not supposed to be more excited about any man than you are Jesus. You're not supposed to have any devotion to any group more than you do God's Christian church bought with the blood of Christ and sealed with the Holy Ghost. We have something to belong to that's better than all of their junk. But we keep letting ourselves get distracted. I got an email from a guy the other day Checking out the church. Before I come, which the code is, I'm really important. So before I invest an hour that I might not get back, tell me about your politics. Now, I hate to tell you this, but if you're shopping for a church based on who I voted for, you fell out of the bathtub and hit your head. You may not remember it, but you did. That's a hematoma type situation. You have pressure on your brain because that is not even supposed to be the calculation. Do I have to remind all of you that there was actually decades and centuries in the American church where you never knew how anybody at the church voted because it was considered private and not the point? Only in the last few years have we decided there's Republican churches and Democratic churches. That's ridiculous. So I answered him, but that's not the point of my sermon. Moving along, pastor, did he come and visit? Ain't seen him yet. I'm sure he found something that he liked a lot. How do we wait well? I'm glad you asked, because it's right there in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. I'm going to hit this and be done. I've taken too much time. But Hebrews 10, 23 was telling us how to wait well. And I want us to look at these three verses together and I'll quit. And we're just going to take them one at a time, Lisa. So we'll just leave that up for a minute. Step one to waiting well for a Christian. Hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. Hold fast the confession of of your hope. Confession is not a word depending on your background. If you're more liturgical background, you're familiar with the confessions of the church. If you're more charismatic background or maybe non-denominational, that might seem a, a, a weird term. But throughout church history, the church abided in its confession. Confession means its declaration. So when he's saying, hold fast the confession of your hope, in other words, don't let anybody move you 
from the confession of the Christian church. Well, what's the confession of the Christian church? That there is one God who is above all and through all and in you all, that he is the creator of all, that he had one son born of a virgin who came to be our savior. That one son died for our sin and made the only way for mankind to be saved. That son rose from the grave on the third day, bodily resurrected, proving that he was the son of God, and then ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. And that son is coming again. That is the confession of the Christian church. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you want to wait well, hold on to your confession. We might have some kind of thing where we sit and discuss Stan and I, and he goes, well, I like NIV, and I go, well, I like New King James. All of that's fine, whatever. We could talk about that all day. But if he looks at me and goes, is Jesus the Son of God? My response, yes, because the word says so. How many gods are there? One. Were we an accident? Not even a hope. He created everything. This is the confession of the Christian church. There is one way of salvation. Pastor, people don't like that now, but I'm not trying to hold fast to their confession of perversion and sin and humanistic foolishness. I am holding fast to the confession of God's church. There is one Savior, and his name is Jesus. He is the only one that can wash me, and he's the one coming back for me. That's the confession of the Christian church. And the writer of Hebrews says, you want to wait well? Hold on to that without wavering. Everybody say the word waver. Waver implies forces trying to move you from the simplicity of that confession. And Steve gets in a conversation and says, hey, look, man, I just believe the Bible. There's one God, he made everything. Well, what about this? What about that? What about the other thing? I don't know about all that crap. I just know that the Bible says God made everything. I'm trusting God. See, if there wasn't demonic spirits at work, a person would walk away and go, huh, okay. But have you noticed that's not what they do? Oh, man, don't you think? I mean, like that six-day thing, right? Like those days could have been whole long periods of time, right? And it wouldn't technically be a lie, would it? And they start doing all this little, and you got to watch some Lord of the Rings movies. (laughs) That worm tongue dude, that's the spirit of this age. Uh, It's not quite like that. I know Jesus said he was the only way, but we actually know there's a lot of other ways. Keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. Hold fast your confession without wavering. And when it gets hostile, you have to be an idiot to believe that. Okay. That's stupid to do that Christian thing. Okay. I think you are the biggest fool I've ever met. Cool. Peace. I'm good. I'm going to stay right over here holding on to the leg of daddy and let you call it whatever you want because I am trying to wait well. So you're not dragging me over here to be a zealot. Oh, see, I don't have time to be a Sadducee. I don't. The rally's at nine. I'm busy. You know, if you met with us, you could find out what's wrong with everyone. Don't have time to be a Pharisee either. I'm good. I'm just going to stay right over here and be nice and try to be like Jesus and rejoice in the fact that he loves me and try to show that love to other people, which is becoming increasingly challenging because they all meet you first. Anyways, um, point number two in waiting well, he said, so hold fast your confession, verse 24. He said, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. The second part of waiting well is we need each other. That scripture doesn't even work if you're a lone ranger at your house by yourself. Because then you'd have to look in the mirror 
You'd have to do that weird stuff that they talk about in those infomercial things. You'd have to look in the mirror and be like, you are a champion. That's just weird. No, we're supposed to be in this together to encourage, consider one another, edify one another. What are we trying to stir up? Love. (laughs) Everybody just say love. That's what we're supposed to be stirring up. Love. Mm. People want to have all kinds of stuff stirred up now, but now they want to stir up hate and division and discontent. Who to be mad at? Look, do it if you want to, but don't blame that on Jesus. Jesus told us to get together and stir up love. I know you hate your neighbor, but you can't kill him. They'll find the body. So let's pray. Let's love him. Let's pretend that for just a moment, we just have to understand and we have to get along and we have to love each other. Maybe he just needs encouragement. He's been angry for 50 years. Then he's needed it for a long time. But let's go. (laughs) Stirring up love is what it said. Good works. Why do you got to stir this stuff up? Because it's the stuff that tries to settle to the bottom of the bucket. If you've ever opened an empty paint can, come on, somebody. All you got at the top is that milky, nasty-looking stuff, and all the good stuff's on the bottom of the can. It settles all the way down, and so you got to stir it up. You go, well, that's so simple as to be redneck and hillbilly. Hey, the Hebrews guy did it. Stir up love and good works. In your natural state, that's not what naturally happens. Billy is not naturally loving. So I have to get with him and be like, bro, let's be nice. Let's do it together. We can do this together. And he goes, cool. If you're going to bother me about my love, what's the last time you did good for somebody else? And I go, oh, God, come on, dude. You know. And then we walk together. Stirring up the good stuff. This is how you wait well. I'm not supposed to be helping Randy join a terrorist group. Hey, I found a way, Randy, for us to really serve the Lord. What's that? Get 12 guns and meet me at dawn. In any other age, we would know how dumb that is. We're supposed to be stirring up the good stuff. If the Pharisees had known about this, the first time one of them got grumpy, we should write a law that says if we see them on the street, we can stone them. The other Pharisees would have gone, bro, shut up. Get over here, let us pray for you. What is that? But no, they don't have this. So their wickedness just takes them off into the bushes. As Christians, we have this. We have the Holy Spirit, man. We've got the love of God shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost. We can do this stuff if we'll just make up in our minds. This is how you wait well. Not by figuring out how many email groups you can be on, but by stirring up love and good works. And finally, we know it says it there, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And look at that. So much more as you see the day approaching. I stumbled quite accidentally into one of those online chat things where the Christians were arguing about the end times. Please don't do that. Because it just doesn't make sense. And they were all arguing, snarling at each other, which is, of course, stirring up love and good works. But they couldn't be bothered with those simple scriptures. Now, that's stupid. We're deep. So we're way over here in blood moons and trumpets and all of it. And so I posted this on the part where they were talking about how they don't go to church anymore because nobody's deep enough to be their pastor. So with no commentary, I just posted that. You know how popular it was? (laughs) Do you know how well it went over? I'll just let your imagination ruminate on that. 
and leave that alone for a minute. If you get so deep with God, the Bible makes you mad. Wow is right. You can always know if you're here at church and I preach something from the Bible, everybody say from the Bible, and it makes you mad. You know who's wrong? You. Now, if I just make you mad with something dumb, some joke I tell or some example I have or something where I misspeak, because I'm a human being too, that's obviously me and you need to come tell me that. But just know, if all you're mad about is I read a scripture you don't like, that's pretty much you. Like I should just have a mirror. I thought about doing this, bro. I saw this in a political cartoon. You tell me what you think, Mike. It was a gold chain, like a rappers would have the big chain, but then the medallion was just a gigantic mirror, big, so that the pastor, when he was preaching, could just walk around, and you just looking at you. And I thought, you know, that's kind of got a, there's a certain, now I've gotten old enough, I think it would hurt my neck. I don't think it would work out. And I'm the wrong shape, so my mirror wouldn't be, it would, anyways. But, but just understand that the number one person trying to help you be mad enough not to come to church is always the devil. Because he knows that scripture. And we live in a day and an hour when people just change churches like they change socks. Well, I didn't like that, so I left. And then I was at that place for three months, and they sang a song I didn't like, so I left. And I was over there, and they, they was going good for a whole two weeks. I almost joined that church. But then the offering bag came by, and they implied I should give something, and that makes them greedy, so I left. And when it's all said and done, when you wind up splintered off by yourself being discipled by YouTube, you are absolutely making the Antichrist drool with anticipation. Because it's always easy to lead somebody astray who's alone. Because you don't have anybody sitting beside you to be like, hey, that's dumb. Which is a part of being Christians. To just nudge one another and be like, hey bro, not your best moment. Why would you say that? Because what you said was just so stupid. And then you get back on the path together. There's a scene, I, I'm gonna quit. There's a scene in Gladiator. How many are not too holy, you've seen Gladiator? Okay, thank you. It's awesome, man, it's so good. It's so great. Somewhere deep underneath, I just know Jesus even likes that movie. Russell Crowe looks into the camera and heaven even goes, yeah. But when he, if you don't know the story, is a Roman general who winds up being captured in another place and then shuttled into the slave system of being a gladiator fighter. He winds up in Rome, so you have a Roman general organizing the gladiators to fight the Romans, which is a great thing to have in your pocket. Yes, we're supposed to go out here and die well, but our guy used to be in charge of those guys. And if you've ever seen the movie, it's fantastic because the Caesar's sitting there in all of his pomp and circumstance because the gladiators are supposed to panic and scatter and the Roman legion is supposed to kill them easily. And waiting in the hallway, Maximus says to his guys, if you will stay together, you cannot be defeated. That's what they know that you don't. And they all go, well, dying doesn't sound good. So let's try it his way. And if you've ever seen the movie, the gladiators come out, they're supposed to scatter, but they don't. They get their shields, they get in a circle, they interlock their stuff, and they get down and they're shoulder to shoulder and they're together. And even the Roman guy goes, okay, that's not good. And so then the Roman legion comes out and the only people that die are the ones who don't stay in the group. Everyone else makes it. You say, well, pastor, are you trying to be intimidating or something to make us always come to church? Yes. If you want to die quick in the last hour, 
get splintered out from your church over something dumb. We're going to only make it if we stick together. And that means doing the hard work of relationship. It means if I upset you, if I offend you, you need to come tell me that, not vanish off into the bushes. If you do something that offends me, rather than wasting a Sunday preaching at you, how many have ever enjoyed that privilege in church when the pastor's just mad? I'm just mad at Billy, but I'm going to tell you all. (laughs) No, we don't waste time on that stuff because that's a sin before the Lord. No, I got to be willing to do the work. Just go to him, humble myself and say, hey, man, I don't know if you meant it or not, but you really, really wounded me. With that thing, it's the hard work of relationship and reconciliation and praying and learning how to forgive one another and learning how to encourage one another. All the stuff that in our culture people have gotten too lazy to do. And that's why the sheep just migrate around. Field to field to field to field to field. Always easily moved. And they never really realize that's a setup to be destroyed in the end. Because as soon as it gets hard, what did all the churches learn during COVID? That half the people weren't actually in the church. Because as soon as they were told to stay home, and they did more than twice, they were like, eh, staying home is good. Not if you want to make it to the end. You may find this hard to believe. You need me. Now, I know that's one of the worst pieces of information you could, I mean, you go get in your car and be like, what did I do to need that dude? We need each other. We need each other. And not because we're all awesome. We're just us. It's just Walton them. Up there at Wellspring, just Walton them. Well, how are you up there? Is this Walton them? Just up there. You know what? We got angels on our side. We have the Word of God. We got the Holy Spirit. And we're tough, man. See, that's what I see when I look around this room. Y'all been through some stuff, man. We're not rookies. We've walked through fights. We've fought through cancers. We've lost children. We've walked through the fire and the flood and everything else and still managed to walk in and participate in worship most weeks. Like, we're on top of it. We need each other. I've got to be able to take Joe for coffee and go, dude, I'm just about to give up. I am so worn out and I'm so discouraged and have my brother lift me up and edify me and breathe life back into me. We need each other. If we want to wait well, we hold on to our confessions of Christianity, not all the politics. And when we see each other, we stir up love and good works. Hey, man, don't be hateful. That's easy. Anybody can be hateful. There's people out acting like it's a spiritual gift. I'm anointed to be hateful, don't you know? Yeah, it's a spirit, bro, but it's not God. No, we stir up love. We stir up good works. We encourage one another, and we help each other hang in. We can make it if we stick it out together. I hate to tell you this, but this isn't going to get easier. It's just going to get weirder. It's just going to get weirder. And whoever it was that prophesied back during the Revolutionary War that we were going to have a president that wouldn't make us confused, we're still waiting on that word. But while we wait, we hold on to each other and to Jesus, and we love him well, and we love well, and we encourage, and we lift up, and we need each other. And when it gets weird, we go, wow, that's weird. Let's pray, let's worship, let's seek the face of God, let's get some wisdom from heaven. Well, I know what to do, I Googled. No, see, that's the whole problem. Let's pray, let's seek some wisdom from heaven. Let's wait well, man, because when we looked at that list, bro, think about it, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, right? Jesus, on his arrival, had his biggest problems with those groups, If you want to get in the way of having a happy reunion with Christ when the trumpet sounds, get drug off into one of these splinter groups 
No, let's wait well. Amen? Why don't you stand with me this morning? I went over. I apologize. But you'll just have to love me anyway. Thanks again for stopping by. If you'd like any more info about us, feel free to swing by wellsprings.church. Have a blessed day.